Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, Caroline Ford. On this episode, I am joined by award-winning, best-selling author and columnist Sophie White. Sophie so articulately shares her story with me, the pivotal moment at the age of 22 that changed everything, the diagnosis of bipolar 2 she would later receive, the anxiety of needing psychiatric care versus what it was really like to get it, and how she eventually began to own her mental illness. I want to include a trigger warning here as Sophie does go into detail on a particularly tough point where she was having suicidal thoughts. Now a mother of three and an incredibly successful and really talented, hilarious writer, I hope that Sophie's story gives reassurance to those struggling with mental illness, whether or not it's bipolar or more chronic anxiety as was the case for me, that it won't always define you or be all that you ever do. There's so much to discuss with Sophie, we actually decided towards the end of this episode that we would make it a two-parter. So this first episode is Sophie's story right up until she gets a handle on things after her first most significant episode. And then we'll follow up in a few short weeks with how her story continued when she became a parent, which is an experience that for many of us can be fraught with anxiety in itself. Thank you so much for listening and for being here. And please, please consider if you like this series, hop on over to my Substack where we can connect on a more personal level and I can get more useful content delivered to your inbox. You'll find me over there at carolineforin.substack.com and the newsletter is just called Own It with Caroline Foran. Thank you so much. Sophie White, I am so thrilled to have you on the podcast I've wanted to have you on for so long and never more so than when I finished your award-winning book My Hot Friend which was such a wonderful insight into certain types of mental illness thank you for joining me oh thank you for having me feels really I really have to like remind myself that we're recording this because I'm just like here we are for a chat yeah just forget (laughs) about the recording and that's when the best chats happen yeah it was a phenomenal piece of writing as is everything else you've done and it's always amazing to me when I think I think all creative people suffer in some way but when you can take it and turn it into something that's tangible that people can engage with that they can make sense of their own experience with um how I will go back into your your whole story but how was it right for you writing something fictional that was I believe quite close to the bone for you yeah, so I think with commercial women's fiction, it's like sometimes perceived as being unserious, whereas I find across the board, there's always like bigger talk, bigger discussions happening in the in the stories. And so um, but with my hot friend, as you say, yeah, it was like close to my own experience of being bipolar. And I think like more than any other book that I've ever written, and even that's including my nonfiction, um, it was a subject I felt this like enormous responsibility um, uh, in writing about. Like, I just, like, obviously you can never like represent, you know, every friggin' angle on, on an illness or anything, but I just felt like a real sense of like, I have to get this right. Um, so yeah, I did actually find that hard. And it's really funny because people often say to me, oh, like corpsing, which was my collection of essays, 
um, must have been really hard to write or even Where I End, which is a horror novel, must have been hard to write. And I'm always like, no, honestly, my hot friend with like the most serious title, um, you know, actually was really tough um, to get it right and to get across like a manic episode in a way that could help people understand what it feels like, but also capture the experience of it. You know, it was very challenging. It was hard. Well, yeah. <laughs> you did it, to, to my mind, you did it so well. Let's rewind. Um, I was reading up a little bit about your experience when you were 22, this one fateful experience in Electric Picnic, if you're happy to talk about it, which I think for you was quite a turning point. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Like a very kind of watershed moment. There is my before life and then there's been my life since then. And um, yeah, it was um, it was when I was 22. So it was 2007. And um, I basically like just over the course of one night, like just completely like broke my brain and like really wasn't right again for years. And even like what's right you know I've had breakdowns since then but I think your first really hits differently you know that kind of way <laughs> like oh, you never yeah yeah I always think of all my breakdowns as like now that's what I call breakdowns <laughs> like a best of you know um so the first breakdown was really quite something um so yeah, I was just 22. I'd finished college and I'd, you know, just started working. Um, I worked in a bookshop at the time. Dream job. Terrible job if you're having um, an actual nervous breakdown, though, because you're alone all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in a secondhand bookshop, so it was kind of uh, solitary enough. But yeah, like leading into um, the night, uh, I was just kind of average uh, in terms of like having never really experienced any kind of mental illness. And um, and I, I certainly had had friends when I was a teenager who'd kind of on, been on different medications and things like that. And like, it was so like, I mean, whether it was less common or probably more likely just less talked about, like, you know, nobody talked about that kind of stuff at the time. So like my couple of friends who had been like treated for mental illness, like, you know, it was quite like, I don't know, significant because yeah. I just didn't know anybody else. And um, yeah, so I hadn't had anything like that. Um, and I mean, I say average, like I was I was totally average, you know, you know, middle class teenager um, you know, had all the privilege that comes with that. Um, I think the thing that probably was not average was that I um, was kind of like, well, like I've now realized an alcoholic, but like I definitely would have had like substance use issues, shall we say, from like a really young age. And like I um, suppose going through college and stuff, I, um, you know, did a lot of drugs, but I guess I kind of always could find somebody else who was like much worse than me, quote unquote, yeah. worse than me. Do you know that kind of way? So you can always find somebody to kind of social make- social thing as well. Yeah, yeah, like, um, and yeah, I just, I thought I was quite moderate, um, put it that way. But like, really on reflection, like, <laughs> depends on your metric for moderate. <laughs> but I, I do think now I'm like, no, you know, I probably smoked weed, like, you know, most days for quite a long time. And, you know, um, really into pills and mushrooms and, uh, less so like they were my main things and the thing the reason I'm telling you this I guess is because I do think that probably I was laying some kind of foundations for a breakdown you know um like it's hard now like I'm not anti I do think drugs can be should be legalized Mm -hmm. I think that education could be improved on around it um you know I believe like that For certain people, it's totally fine. Um, But I guess now when I think about what I'll say about drugs to my kids, I think I'm going to, you know, probably be like, uh, you know, every time is a bit of a roll of the dice. Like we just don't know what our brains are doing really and what they can take and what they can tolerate, you know. Do you feel like you said you were laying the foundations for some mental health difficulties with substance um, with taking different things? Do you feel Mm -hmm. like... 
the substances or that night when you took that one pill that kind of changed everything was was it the drugs that altered your brain chemistry or did it just unearth something that maybe was always there what do you like do you often go back and think like what came first it's such a hard question like I and actually not one that I have dwelled on that much because I think I've kind of accepted that there's no knowing and what can Um, you do about it you know what will it change yeah totally totally and like you know I have history in my family of other stuff that could probably have meant there was a predisposition there um but then also you know it was just so massively triggered by drugs that like that it can't not have played a part. But also I often think maybe I would have got to this this breakdown point anyway at some point. Mm-hmm. It's just so hard to know, isn't it? Um, and then it's kind of funny because like, you know yourself, as you go to further down the kind of path of like understanding yourself, um, like so much, you have so many epiphanies of like, oh, that's what that was. That's what this was. That's why, you know what I mean? And I always remember, like, I wasn't diagnosed as bipolar until I was um, like maybe 34 or five. Wow. And it was yeah, and like, I probably could have pinpointed maybe five standout breakdowns or standout episodes between the age of 22 and 34. And you know, but I still hadn't really put it together, really, that it was all under one umbrella of something. Do you know that kind of way? I just I just muddled my way through them all being like, oh, I'm like this and this, this, these things happened to me. And and then it was, you know, a, a psychiatrist when I was in my 30s who was like, you know, I think that your first breakdown might have been your first manic episode. Mm-hmm. Like, so he was kind of starting to look at putting a framework kind of, you know, retroactively. And how, how did it feel to retroactively get that information and I suppose retrofit it? Was it frightening or was it actually kind of like freeing and that you're like, oh, actually, maybe this makes sense? Yeah, I think it does. It helps to make sense of it all. And I think it kind of helped me a little bit with the shame around it mm-hmm. because I had enormous shame at having my first breakdown and it be triggered by my drug use and my own behaviors as I saw it you know and and it was it's just that there was probably more things going on and the other thing is like I do think you know we just like you talk a lot about self-compassion on this podcast and I love that and um you know I think I was so so hard on myself um you know at 22 I thought I deserved what I was getting mm-hmm. and um you know no one deserves to be suicidal like and whatever you may have done like it's not you know nobody deserves this and um like when he said that it was bipolar like a lot of things just made sense it just made it all feel connected instead of just kind of really scary and um kind of just chaotic and hard to understand. Do you know what I mean? And I did feel a sense of like, oh my God, now we know what this thing is. This feels like more manageable than just kind of a very chaotic trajectory, which I guess is what I had. I also think like now adult me can like look back at 22 year old me and be kinder. And Mm -hmm. like my dad had been diagnosed with um, early onset Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the years before that. And I never, ever drew, drew a line between those two things and thought, oh, maybe I'm trying to escape something with my drug use. Maybe I'm hurting in another way I was just so um I was just so harsh on myself I think we all are absolutely you know were you able with the diagnosis to at least let go of the part of you that said this is my fault because like that alone like you know you mentioned the self-compassion thing even if you take away all the other layers that thinking I did this to myself I don't deserve this that just triggers mm. so much more anxiety it's just bringing cortisol I mean you're just adding fuel to the fire do you feel like you can now say you can now like it's only now you can kind of have that compassion with yourself. Yeah, like I think I did. I did compassion did start to come before being diagnosed with bipolar. Certainly, I think it like I think because I wrote about my first breakdown in my first book, and I think writing about it, you know, did help. It wasn't like 
therapeutic because I do kind of hate when people are like, oh, did you find it therapeutic writing about something? And I'm like, oh, it's not like a dear diary. It's not like a journal. It's writing. It's 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 work. It's art. It's, you know, trying you're trying to create something here, you know. <laughs> um, But it was, I think, I think to put like this kind of narrative framework on it actually was quite beneficial to me. Like it helped me almost kind of tidy up the experience in my mo- own mind and and see parts of it that were hard to see when I was in it. So like to take to go back to that night, what basically happened was, you know, I was 22. I was in a tent in a field at a lecture picnic and um, totally normal day. It was just like a normal day of my life. Like it was it's so weird the way things can just f- change so fast. Um, and I took a pill and I kind of I was in a tent. I think I was at the back of too many DJs and just sort of started to feel myself coming up and, you know, all of the really nice feelings of that. And then it was just like everything just started to feel just dreadful all of a sudden like I kind of felt like the ground was skipping Um, I felt like the kind of just this kind of like heat coming up um, up my body and like suddenly everything looked really weird like it looked like I was looking down the wrong end of binoculars so everything just looked tiny and like kind of like doll figures or something like basically all of my perception just suddenly just like completely dialed into a very strange place like the whole it was just like it was as swift as if somebody had just turned off a light in a room you know and I could never get that light back on Mm-hmm. for years do you know that kind of way but like obviously in that moment I didn't realize it was going to last like for for so long I think I would have just given up straight away if I if somebody had been like you're not going to be well for a long time I, I in the moment I was like you're having a bit of a bad reaction to a pill let's we're okay we're going to be okay just okay this isn't great it doesn't feel great but you're okay you'll be fine like obviously I'd done a lot of hallucinogenics before so I was like you're having a bad trip and it's horrible, but this will be fine in a while. Just you'll be OK. And I just was like, I need to get back to my tent and I just need to like I had this absolute fixation on like I need to hydrate because I grew up in the 90s when all the ecstasy deaths were always from people um being dehydrated. It's awful, awful. But, you know, the way you've got those. I know somebody's probably like, if you had that in your head, why were you even doing ecstasy? You big silly bitch. And I just I. I can't answer that. But um, I, when I went outside the tent, basically, it was like a nightmarish kind of landscape. Um, it's so hard to describe. Like, it was basically like, you know, that feeling in a nightmare of just like all pervasive dread. Mm-hmm. It was just like that had been flicked on inside me. This just just dread soaked kind of feeling. And I felt like I was just in this kind of alien terrain. And and like I said, all of that strange, everything looking so small and like fake looking, like trees looked fake and the people looked fake. It was really, really demented. And um, I got myself back to my tent and I was like, I just need to drink water and ride this out and like sleep it off. And, you know, I'll be fine. And so I kind of... In the tent, like I definitely kind of had a lot of like hallucinating kind of stuff. Like I remember at one point thinking I was talking to my parents and like telling them that I was dead and like really, really freaky, horrible kind of um, hallucinations. Mm -hmm. And anyway, at some point I must have fallen asleep um, and I think probably from just exhaustion from it because it was kind of so relentless for hours and hours. Was someone with you? No, I was on my own. I remember telling the people I was with that I was fine, but I was just going back to the tent and I'd see them later because I couldn't have somebody there with me. Like, it was almost more frightening to say something's wrong. So I just wanted to go and like just ride it out and convinced I could ride it out on my own. And like when I was in that tent, like, I mean, it must have been at least like just hours, like maybe three or four hours of just like this relentless terror and 
strange hallucinating and like oh I was just like in the fetal position I guess like trying to drink water trying and um so I kind of woke up then the next morning and I kind of initially was like oh my god am I okay and I kind of was like yeah okay I think I'm okay just that was horrible and I'm never fucking doing pills again (laughs) and you know I kind of got out of my tent and I just felt a bit like unsteady but kind of just like oh a bit of a fiery kind of hangover mm-hmm. and then it was really weird it was like the exact same sensations from the night before started in the same order the ground sort of felt like it was almost skipping a bit and this feeling of like hot coming up my body like rising really fast up my body and then this the strange switch being flicked again of just this fake world mm-hmm. that looked so small and far away and like people talking to me and like their faces looked fake. It was really, really, really terrifying. And way more terrifying was the fact that I had not done any pill. You know what I mean? This was now just happening of its own accord. And I mean, that was pretty much then what my life was like um, for the next, uh, certainly like three months, really acutely, like um, every single day, all day was just... And were you feeling, I mean, were you getting any breaks from those sort of hallucinogenic moments or were you anxious, anxiously awaiting the next moment you'd feel it or like what the, what was the anxiety like around that? Like, oh, is this, when is this going to end? What if it doesn't end? What, what is happening? Do I need to go? What, what was that like for you? Cause that in itself, again, is another layer. Yeah. You kind of have this anticipatory anxiety about the thing happening so then it happens so then it keeps going and more yeah it's like a complete spiral of and just yeah it's really really annoying (laughs) Um, it's just I think that's the thing that people fear the most is that they can get into a state that they if all they have to do is think it will happen and and then it does and then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and getting yourself above that which you probably were in nowhere like nowhere near being able to do because it was so beyond Mm. even understanding at the time but like yeah in general, being able to see above what's happening, see what, you know, the wood for the trees, but you were so yeah, totally, at that point. Totally. And like the, the thing was, so that first day of being mad, I was like, I just was so scared. I was like, I just didn't know what it meant that it was happening again. And obviously being stressed and scared would definitely have exacerbated it as well. But like, there was no way of like short circuiting it. It was like, it was just quite like relentless all the time. And, but I kept being like, it'll pass. Uh, maybe I just need another few days, do you know? Like, and so it wasn't really until kind of, you know, maybe the, about the first week of it ending that I was like, this is not right. Like, it's not okay that I'm still like this and everything looks so weird. And the thing was like, these thoughts had then started to take hold of like, I'm going mad, like that I've broken my brain, like irreparably. And and it really felt like that. Um, I was really scared that I was going to hurt someone. Like that I was going mad and that was what mad people did or something. You know, like I cannot stress enough as well how the whole like discourse around mental health did not exist in 20, 2007. And the like, only thing that did exist, like you say there, is that like you'd be a serial killer or that you, you know, kill your children. Yeah. That's all we knew of it. And it was something to fear massively. So if you yeah. had an inkling of it in yourself, it was like, oh my God. Whereas if that happened to you now, it could have been a yeah. totally different, even with all the same brain chemistry happening, it could have been a totally different experience for the perception alone around what was happening. Oh. 1000% like it was just so isolating and like it was so hard to explain what was wrong as well because it was just like even say like I mean you know, depression might have been sort of somewhat talked about but like this didn't feel like depression and it didn't feel like you know it just felt like purely mad like just really like weird mad <laughs> like that was the other thing it was like if I tried to explain 
like why it was so awful. It sort of sometimes sounded kind of like funny almost like in terms of I remember one night I got just utterly convinced that my right arm wasn't my own Mm -hmm. and like it was so hard to explain that because it sounds mad because it is mad but like it was so disturbing ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. In a totally different context, but for me, when I was feeling anxious and I was desperately looking to tell people about it so that they could say, oh yeah, I get that. Or, oh yeah, I feel like mm. that sometimes because you want so much to know you're part of the group that, you know, you're not an outlier and such a part mm. of anxiety, for me, such a part of, of solving anxiety is having my reality reflected back to me. And if you weren't getting that, I can imagine you go even further into what the fuck, why is, why me? Yeah, like there's something seriously wrong because nobody's identifying with it. I'm like, do you ever get that thing where like your arm doesn't feel like your own? You know that thing? And they're like, I'd love you. No, what is that? Um, And so, and then the thing was like after, so I got like so locked on to this terror that I was going to hurt someone. Um or go mad and it was just like it also felt like such mad behavior for these two thoughts to just be um just over and over like a cacophony over and over in your mind all day long like how like it's so mad to just be thinking about how mad you are all the time you know, I know. um and it was truly like um, it was like kind of a Tourette's of the mind or something like it just, you know, the thoughts didn't feel like mine um, and they just were relentless and like going along and trying to do normal things became eventually just totally untenable. So I tried for a long time to pretend nothing was wrong and Does that was also know? extremely stressful. Um, my boyfriend who I lived with couldn't. No, I have not known. I tried. I tried to hide it from him. But like it was you couldn't live with a person who is just like all the live long day terrified that they're going mad and that they're going to kill somebody and not be like, something's a bit, are you a bit off? <laughs> you know, um, but it, again, and he was really he was really sweet, but like very kind of green on like any of this kind of like what's wrong with your head stuff you know and I mean he tries tried to be reassuring um but it was like just to know what to do where to even begin like I remember kind of oh I started drinking chamomile tea and was like this might (laughs) do something like you know and like obviously I didn't drink again or or take any drugs obviously like I just felt so insane like I found things like going to the supermarket so terrifying found watching television just like unbearable 
And like you might, I think, relate with this kind of because anxiety can really be like this too when all of your senses are so yeah. heightened that it feels like an onslaught. Yeah, so, it's like just threat. you're just getting threatened by noises and different like stimuli around you, any kind of sensory things. I remember the TV feeling very ominous, anything that was yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. And I used to be, you know, this is a funny one because I didn't actually experience this, but I used to really be scared that the TV was going to start talking to me. Um, and it's so weird to have just like anxiety about something like that happening because you're like, what does it mean that I'm what you know, um, I've heard you describe it really well, actually, you articulate it so well when you say about how sometimes if you feel a flicker of the physical things that remind you of anxiety, that you get anxious suddenly, yeah. that yeah, you might become anxious. Anxiety. And it's and like you said earlier, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're like, oh, now I'm anxious about being anxious. Fuck. So now I'm just anxious again. Full stop, you know. Um, so I do think like sometimes I used to have these kind of intrusive thoughts where it'd be like, what if the TV is going to start talking to me? And the intrusive thought would feel so real that it was nearly as good as the fucking TV talking to me. It's enough. The chemical has been released. It's enough. Your fear response is triggered. That's all that matters. Mm. But you were just so in such a problem, your brain and your body was in such a raw, fragile, poor state of fight or flight, freeze, fawn, you know, and anything, anything in your vicinity was threatening your existence because you just didn't feel safe. And I, like, yeah, in, in a completely different way for me, I always described it as like, as like I lost this protective layer that we're all born with that, like everything was just, I was vulnerable to everything. And it's so yeah, you're like a raw nerve, a raw nerve. And the thing is, like, as well, the most like kind of like what you're saying there, like, I really relate because like the most benign things used to suddenly terrify me, mm -hmm. like, and it would be because I'd be like, does the shampoo bottle look weird? Yeah. Oh, like, or am I am I imagining am I making it look weird? Is it, does it look weird because I'm crazy or is it really weird? And like these thoughts would then start to just kind of like cascade. Mm -hmm into like, I couldn't even decipher anymore, like whether I was seeing something that wasn't quite there. Mm. And then what did that mean? And then my brain would just spiral in that direction. Do you know what I'm trying to say? So it was like, it was basically like, I mean, I had basically really severe sensory disturbances. So things did look weird. And that did scare the fucking shit out of me, you know? Mm. And then... I had kind of um, like I, I would say I never had like a full hallucinations except for that first night, but more just the sensory disturbances. But I did have auditory hallucinations, which are really fucking horrible. Yeah, and it's when you're, when you're hearing, it's not like hearing a voice. Well, for me, it wasn't like hearing a voice in my head. It felt like somebody was whispering at me a lot all the time. Um, I get it a lot in bed at night um, and like it would feel like of, you know, that a person was really close to my ear whispering and I'd be lying in the bed. It was the most horrible sensation. And, you know, do you really remember at the time, like I used to go to bed, I'd be so exhausted at the end of every day. And I'd have put another day of just like pure, oh, just like real chaos and terror behind me. And I used to, um, I was really lucky because a lot of people report not being able to sleep with this kind of thing but I always was able to I was really shattered by the days and in my dreams I felt normal and I always remember every morning I'd wake up and I'd have like a tiny little vestige of that normal feeling in my dream that reminded me what it used to be like to be me and then I think like is it is it Am I, am I better? And it would just rush back to me. Like it would just all rush back into my body. Like, again, I'd say at that point, I was just like on such a heightened state. Like I was just being absolutely bombarded with all of my, all of the body chemicals at that point. Like I'd been in a, a fight stage for like months by then. And the, the thing is as well, like you get really worn down mentally. You know this. Of course you do. But like where... Then the messed up thoughts have an easier time of laying root or do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. taking root. Like, so basically I got really, really convinced that um, my life hadn't been real and that like my memories of my life weren't real and 
that the people in my life weren't real. And like, again, like sometimes when you're trying to explain being mad to people, it just sounds really mad and sometimes kind of funny as in like, why? Why would you think that? But it was so like the conviction around it is like hard to describe. But like I really when I think back on my life, like my memories of before, it just they felt fake. And like I started to think they had been like somehow implanted or, you know, and like, I mean, fucking God love me. Like now when I go back through it all, I'm like, is it hard to go back there? Do you feel like there's enough distance there? Obviously, like I, I want to ask you about the, the, when you eventually started to understand and put the pieces yeah. together. And, mm. You know, you've gone on to have a really wonderful career and three children and your, you know, beautiful family, home and marriage, and you know you've you've gone on to achieve things that I'm sure at the time felt so far from the realm of possibility. God, oh, yeah, but yeah. When when you sort of can have this semblance of what what is now a normal day for you and you think back to that time how does that feel is it something you try to avoid or do you feel like you kind of have to go back and, and still honor that that the sophie from that time um i guess when i think back i just feel quite sorry for me but not in a self pity way but just more in a like you do deserve self pity that was horrendous yeah i mean i just wish that there had been more uh, just more discussion around it all, you know, because like, especially when I did eventually write the story, so many people contacted me and said that they'd experienced similar. And I just felt like how frustrating that we were all separately oh, experiencing this thing. And like, you know, especially with the drugs element, like just feeling so much shame around it and stuff. And, but it's funny because like I have had, episodes bad enough for my thinking to have gone very distorted again. But each time I've come out of an episode is like another time I've kind of banked of like, I survived it. I did it. experience and knowing what was what and what what you can take forward. What for you after that first episode, what was the first sort of open door that made, that helped you come out of the intensity of that and function again? Okay, so it's quite a depressing open door, but I started planning my suicide. And I got to that point because I really, really challenge anyone to go through three or so months of like terror, relentless terror all day long and to not eventually get to that point. I I, I hate to say it, but like like listening to you, I was like, of course you'd get there. Of yeah, course. totally. Yeah. And it was just like, I remember feeling really sad as in feeling bad about the fact that I was going to have to do this because it felt like the only way to just make it all stop. And I felt really sad and bad for my parents. I'm really sad for my boyfriend. I thought, oh, he's fallen in love with the wrong person. And like I had all of this awareness of what I was going to do. But I also just thought I just can't go on like this and you know I've ruined my life and it was just this weird sensation of inevitability around it where I just kind of thought like so it felt like it had always been leading to this somehow Um, and I think that's a kind of a sensation people I've I've heard other people say similar that there is a sense of inevitability Mm -hmm. about it all coming to this in some way and you know anyway I kind of started planning it and I could see that it wasn't great to be planning my own suicide and I was like I had my mother had been trying to make me go to a psychiatrist and I had been really resisting and I mean I'd say she only at that time knew like a fraction of what was going on and she was like you need to go and see somebody and like I did all the kind of classic things like she'd make an appointment for me and I cancel it and not go and you know that kind of way like and it was just again more fear of again the the unknown of the psychiatric system and you know well, the shrouded only... in mystery I suppose as well you know what does it look like to get help are you going to be exactly wrapped to a gurney or something you know yeah like the only kind of cultural touch points are like 
one flew over the cuckoo's nest and girl interrupted and it's just like really unhelpful representations yeah <laughs> um, and yeah and so yeah and I also was really scared that it, it would be confirmed that like I was I was broken and like that yeah anyway in the end I said like I couldn't in good I was like I can't in good conscience kill myself if I haven't even tried to go to the doctor <laughs> so I said right I'll do this and then I'll get back to the plan if if you know it's there and it's my in my back pocket and um so I also at this time was got really lucky and it was so lucky that at the time I was a bit scared that I was hallucinating it or imagining it but I met this guy who had been through an identical experience and I had met him because I had I decided that I had to um quit um my job in the bookshop uh, because it was I mean honestly I I just I was not a mm-hmm. functioning person at that time and I um was going to move back in with my parents and um I was hiring my replacement and and like, you know, to be clear, I was really lucky that I could move back in with my parents. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, as I already said, I didn't think I was going to be there for long. Uh, but I hired this guy and uh, I was showing him kind of oh, just like how to shut down and open up the bookshop and all this kind of stuff. And like somehow out of like truly nowhere, because like I hadn't told my closest friends, I told him what was happening and he had had the exact same experience and like right down to he was like this is probably what will happen if you go to the doctor they'll probably put you on this medication put you on that medication and he was really like matter of fact and he was like yeah like I got through it and like it was just so so serendipitous that I just was like this can't even be real like Mm. is this guy real or is he a product of my brain anyway the they were the two kind of pushes to getting help was him and the old suicide plan and so I went um I really vividly remember going for my first appointment in John of God's and my first appointment was with my psychiatrist and and like God love her she did nothing to deserve this but I hated her um and like, I don't know why, probably just because she was trying to prescribe me medication. And like, I had all my own prejudices around medication based on, again, nothing except probably like misguided representations yeah. in films and books and things. And also, I guess I just felt really, really scared of taking another pill. No, I know. There's a vast difference between ecstasy and uh, prescription meds but I think I just was so terrified and also they were prescribing me like among other things like an antipsychotic and I think because I was so like paranoidly scared about going mad that it just felt like it was confirming my worst fears mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but now I'm like truly I only would have survived with this intervention like I, there was no sense that there was, like, I just don't think I even would have been able to be in a kind of a a state where talk therapy could have helped at all without some kind of medication, you know? Because I do think, like, for lots of people, it's, you know, it's not going to be appropriate. But I think for sometimes to just get you to the baseline of being able to engage in therapy, like you need that help. Mm-hmm. And and I definitely, like I did start to benefit really fast from actually the antipsychotic. <laughs> and, you know, because it did just like turn down the volume a bit uh-huh. on all the crazy and um, just it just gave me a bit of respite and just gave me just like this sense of like a tiny bit of relief of like, okay, something can influence this stuff in my head for the better. And like, you know, um, 
it didn't like it didn't like like I said, yeah, it didn't didn't turn anything off, but it just turned the volume down a bit whereby I felt like I could then sort of get stronger in the rest of my brain, if you know what I mean. But I would still say that the kind of recovery was like probably about two years until I felt like I had a good stretch of, I think, because basically I had a lot of kind of backsliding. So I'd have like a good, it started like I'd have a good couple of days and then it was like I had a good week. And then the feelings would come back. I think the constant thought of I'll never be free of this yeah. used to kind of go around around my head. It's never be free of this. It's never be free of this. It's always there. It's always there, you know. Um, and so that first kind of, yeah, breakdown experience was quite like long recovery out of it. Um, and but like. It was still, I would say, the kind of subsequent sort of backslides were nothing like the initial breakdown. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I you think more. Yeah, yeah. I just started to know more and more. And I was very like careful with how I kind of lived like at the time. Like, I mean, I stayed off drinking drugs, obviously. And like, I just kind of kept things very sort of simple and now, I mean, I worked as a chef, which is kind of funny because people don't associate that with like, um, um, but I actually found it really great because it was very like, it really demands that you stay in the moment. Like you cannot ruminate if you're a chef, like you are constantly, constantly in the moment, just doing the exact thing in front of you and thinking about the exact next thing, but that's it, you know? And so I used to find it like really, really therapeutic to go to work and know that there was like eight or 10 hours here where I was going to, you know, just not be able to think and not be able to dwell. Uh, you know your what I mean? And I think a diversion. Yeah. Like I think that was kind of what really didn't work about the fact that I was in a bookshop for the first three months of it was just like, I was just there alone, like all the time in the secondhand bookshop and just like everything just really had room to build and build and build, you know, that kind of way. So I don't know. I mean, look, chefing's definitely not for everybody anyway, but I, I loved it. And I think that might be a bit of a feature of of um like mental illness in general, that it can be quite hard to do the things that you're supposed to do. And it can be hard for other people to understand why you won't just get on and do the fucking things that but you know, uh it's funny because I'm just writing for my substack about um like going on and off my meds oh yeah um like willy-nilly which is like not recommended oh I've never come <laughs> so... off mine <laughs> I just I'm too afraid to um... oh no no I have like basically just occasionally I just get very like about one particular one that I just hate taking and I'll be like you know fuck that I'm not taking that for a little while and then I'll immediately start seeming quite manic and my husband will be like seems like you're a bit manic are you taking your Erlanzovin and I'm like no Okay. So if you take the so you, like the medication that you found that works, if you take those, you're relatively safe from going manic. Is that how it works? I I don't want to be. Well, I don't want anyone to take what I say as like gospel uh-huh. or in any way informed, uh, because I'm not a doctor. Hashtag not a doctor. But no, I I don't find I don't find it as simple as that. To be honest, I have had episodes while on my medication you know I mean I think often after an episode like my doctor will tweak things and stuff like that um but yeah I mean it's a it's you know a delicate delicate cocktail yeah yeah I ask you Um, what the experience of going into hospital going into psychiatric unit is like because I think so many people who even on like the the other end of the scale who are just feeling overwhelmed and stressed and anxious and afraid of like god what if I just wasn't able to cope and the fear I mean the fear that I always had in my head is I just don't want to be hospitalized because that to me will be really not okay and I think let's just yeah let's just what it I mean it probably is nowhere near as terrifying in reality as it seems it's not like the girl interrupted again that reference of being like you know someone howling outside your door and being chained to your bed and you know like it Mm. 
Mm. What is it really like? Um, it's like really comforting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I had the exact same fear. Oh my god, yeah. And um and I wasn't hospitalized like until 2020. So for my first breakdown, I was an outpatient. And it was, I remember having this argument because they wanted to admit me, and I really, really didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And then it got to, they then got a bit like, okay, if you're this adverse, then fine. Because if you're so adverse, then, you know, maybe it will be detrimental if we force the issue. And so they saw me as an outpatient then, and that was grand. Um, I mean, grand. Yeah, it was great. Fucking loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the first time I was in hospital was in 2020. And it was, um, I'd kind of like, been getting manic and then like had quite a crash so that's the kind of pattern is just like that I just get very racy I get very speedy in my head I start like doing everything and everything's amazing and I won't be told if like it looks like I'm taking on too much or you know um, I can start just like it sounds again. It sounds like kind of weirdly fine in loads of ways because you're like, oh, you must be getting loads of things done. But you're like, yeah. But then you stop sleeping, you start getting really paranoid, and then you start being like, oh, is reality even real again? And you know, it's it's kind of like really, it's like a useful mental illness for like about one percent of it. <laughs> And then the rest of the time you're like, no, it's so fucking unpleasant because it, you start to eventually like amp up until, well, for me, kind of amp up until it feels like, so for a while it feels like I'm riding a horse and it feels great and I'm like flying. And then suddenly the reins are out of my hands and I'm just like, it's it's kind of gone beyond my control and it starts to feel so like unpleasant and relentless and um. And like, yeah, then like your thoughts can go quite skewy as well. And um, and that's obviously really scary. And it's just getting scarier and scarier because you've so much like responsibility now, like compared to when I was 22, you know, it's like this whole different element now of like, I'm a mother and like I have people relying on me. And so like being mentally ill has this uh, uh, new layer of like terror with it. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of... um. Yeah, I just like had this real crash and um, God, it's like, I think I just remember being kind of like on the phone to, wasn't actually my psychiatrist, um, it was somebody covering for him and she was like, just, I think you should come in and we'll try and get a bed and, you know, we'll put you on the list for a bed and like, a part of me just couldn't believe that it was happening. I was just kind of like, how have it, how has it gotten to this point? Surely it's not quite it's not that bad. Like, oh, you know, I've definitely felt more suicidal than this in the past, you know, sort of, it's kind of mad kind of logic. Um, And so when I went there, um, it was quite funny because we had just been about to go on a family holiday with um, my mother. And so we were, we were going to go to Waterford for a couple of weeks uh, to an Airbnb and uh, it was my husband and my three kids and my mom and me. And basically I got a bed the day before. Um, and so instead of going to Waterford with my family, they were dropping me to the hospital and um, it was really surreal. Like I remember going into admissions and just just genuinely couldn't believe like I was just like this is just such a random ass Friday I'm having here you know like but I felt really I felt at that point really really empty and really really numb which is a kind of a post manic feeling and like I mean it sounds kind of like well better numb than terrified or better numb than sad but the kind of emptiness is also really really horrible and scary and um I always think of it like when I try to kind of describe it, I always think of it like, you know, when the when the tide is so far out on the beach and there's just this kind of, I feel like that, that's what it's like in my mind. It's just like 
the tide is everything that matters in life mm -hmm. and it's gone. It's so far out of my reach and Good analogy. it scares me because I need to care. Like I need to care to keep being here and keep being here for my kids and, you know, all of that. And it's really scary. And um, so, yeah, I remember just sitting in admissions and like, you know, filling out some forms and then they brought me up to the ward and they um, went through my stuff, like not in a mean way, but they were just going through it to make sure I didn't have anything that was unsafe. And I remember them taking, trying to take my knitting needles off me. Um, and I was just like, no, like I can't, I need to be able to knit. Like knitting is a big self-soother for me. And they were very nice about it, but like then everything was bad. They were needles. They mm. were like attached to each other with a long bit of wire. Oh, <laughs> there was wool. They were like, we're taking, we have to take away your chargers. Um, so they'd have to take away anything that's not going to be safe. For you to have. And so I remember, I remember then they let me have my knitting. I think I used to have to keep it in the nurse's station. I had to go and get it when I wanted it and bring it back to them. So I couldn't just have it indefinitely. Mm -hmm. And also I remember I had to bring my breast pump and my breast pump is like, you know, breast pump oh, is like yeah. all wires and <laughs> tubes. And so they had to keep that in the nurse's station. And like, it was really weird. I mean, I just remember feeling really at sea when they first, like they brought me to my bed. I had, um, I shared a room with three other women and but like it was not very chatty. Um, would you believe <laughs> everyone in their private misery? And I was like, there's no chat out of these people. <laughs> um, and, you know, you have a little curtain, just like a just like a hospital room. And uh, I remember they just took me around the ward. And for the first few days, I wasn't allowed to leave the ward. And like that would be fairly, I think, pretty standard for anyone who's just coming in really that you kind of have to sort of build up and show them that you're okay to leave the ward. And when you can leave the ward, it just means you can go down to the coffee shop downstairs and to the outdoor area outside where totally randomly there's a pitch and put course. Um, <laughs> so you can get, I'm like, I remember them talking about the pitch and put and I was like, I can't believe they're giving us golf clubs. That just seems like a terrible idea. <laughs> But um, yeah, and then they showed me the kind of canteen and yeah, like, and it's just a bit like, it's like a bit like a hospital slash retirement home okay. is what this was like in terms, there's a kind of a little communal area where there's a TV, there's kind of games and like, I, there was different kind of things you could do like occupational therapy. Um, and I think OT is amazing and um, there's loads of different types of occupational therapy. So there was like a schedule of um, the different things you could do. So like some was like art therapy, some was like baking or um, you could do stuff in the garden. Um, and there was one occupational therapy thing I did that like I think is one of the most amazing um uh, what's the word like cultivators of calm that I've ever ever done and I think it actually for someone anyone with anxiety and even anyone who's like in a panic attack I think I would recommend that you look this up so it's called zen doodle so it's z-e-e-n doodle uh have you heard of it I've heard the name but I don't I haven't looked into it so it's like uh, you can do it. There's YouTube videos. So you can do it at home on your own. Totally. No probs. I did it in an occupational therapy class for the first time. And uh, the teacher, the therapist had like a kind of a whiteboard uh, with a square drawn on it, large, large square. And everyone in the class had tiny, tiny squares, little cards. And she was like, OK, I'm going to draw and you draw exactly what I draw. And we did that for like about half an hour maybe 45 minutes mm -hmm. and you become, it's just such an incredible tool for stilling your mind. Yeah. And like, I've never felt so much like my thoughts have just been suspended. Wow. And it was really, really soothing. Now oh, I remember, wow, yeah, yeah. Like definitely look it up. Like I can imagine if you were in a real panic state, if you got yourself, say, to a piece of paper and put up Zen Zoodle on your phone, and just like said, I'm going to do 15 minutes of this. I think it would probably like it felt like it subdues your brain a bit, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, now, I do remember one friend couldn't sit in the class 
just couldn't do it. Just could not sit. And I totally know that feeling um, of just like huge overwhelm when you just like need to run. But like you need to run away from yourself. But then like you start running and you're like, no, you're still here. Oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, being in hospital was like, it was just rest, you know, like the thing with, say, like I'm always really interested in the word asylum because Mm -hmm. asylums are, you know, it's it's like quite a it's got a negative connotation when you say asylum relating to a mental hospital. Um, But asylum is seeking refuge. Um, And so I find that that's what being in the hospital was like. It was just it was just turning off everything else in life for long enough to heal a bit. Mm. And again, like a huge privilege to be able to do it. And like only thanks to like private health insurance, I, you know, I think it's just a really, really hard road getting this kind of help in this country. Um, you know, so I was so, so lucky that I was able to. And like it absolutely saved. I mean, there's just been so many different times when like, um, you know, psychiatric interventions have saved my life and it's not overstating it. Like, yeah. you know, it's essential. just genuinely essential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's so scary because like for a lot of people, they have the experience of presenting at accident and emergency because they're afraid they're going to kill themselves. And often those people are sent home. Like, mm-hmm. it's really, really scary and it's really, really critical, you know, that people aren't left in that state. Um, and like, obviously, it's really good that we have like Samaritans and Pieta that you can ring any day, any time, you know, but it's not enough, you no, know, for people. No, no. Sophie, there's so much more I really want to talk about with you. I Like, we haven't even touched on becoming a mother. I mean, the anxieties <laughs> that go along with that. I know. Mental illness. Then you throw this into the mix. Also, a, a huge area of conversation I'd love to go into is you know your relationship and um the impact and the worry maybe that you carried wondering oh this is too much for my husband um because I get asked that question a lot like I navigate relationships when you're struggling with mental health can we do a part two oh yeah of course absolutely so for we leave this one here and this is kind of your backstory I suppose into it is <laughs> where you are now and then if you have time like really soon we'll do okay Sophie part two becomes a mother because there's so many questions I want to <laughs> ask about that I know um, that's good that's good yeah and that's just a whole other I mean it's just a huge area of getting blinded by the sun here a huge area of anxiety for mothers who have never felt a flutter of it before and you know oh, yeah um, yeah totally it's 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 huge um, and not talked about enough. But for now, I don't want to exhaust you any further than like having gone back and so eloquently, beautifully articulated what was can only like it's so incredibly tough for you to have gone through. And like you're such a superstar survivor. You really are like you've been through more than any one person should ever have to deal with. Um, oh God, at a time no. when there wasn't, you know, wasn't spoken about, the resources weren't as readily available. There wasn't much awareness. There was huge judgment and stigma. Um, and the fact that you're here now, really, you are like enhancing the world massively with your work and your presence and being here. And I just hope that you never forget that. Thank you. Well, I mean, I feel the exact same about everything that you do. And uh, I really, I really appreciate what you've built here like it's incredible like so incredible ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access the full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.